for real, Leandro and Daniel, as the weight of the words should kill. This poem is full of blood, fornication, guts, and guns. This poem paints nationalist, sexist, racist, and fundamentalist of all else. However, this poem encourages creative lies when those lies are in service to this poem's politics. This poem, this poem, this poem is about starvation in Ethiopia, tribal warfare in Rwanda, ethnic cleansing in Yugoslavia, oil workers struggling in Nigeria, starvation, reclassification, indoctrination, stagnation, and the return of the colonialists to oversee our freedom. This poem, this poem, this poem is about moving and grooving, but you going nowhere about moving and grooving, but you going nowhere about moving and grooving, but you going nowhere, going nowhere, going nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. This is Change the Story, Change the World, a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. My name is Bill Cleveland. You know, one of the limitations of the podcast game is that it's almost always a slice of the story at a particular point in time. And at the end of the day, the sign-off is the sign-off. And what happens next and next is, of course, the unknowable future. But many know... Most of our stories are works in progress, and I don't know about you, but I usually want to turn the page, particularly for these emerging post-pandemic chapters. So, just to satisfy my curiosity and hopefully yours, we've decided to do some revisiting to see what has transpired for some of our guests. When I started to ponder these circle back episodes, the name that appeared at the top of my list was the dynamic poet, provocateur, creative change agent extraordinaire, Alice Lovelace, whose voice you heard at the top of the show. In our last conversation, we shared her tumultuous history as a solo teaching artist and performer, bringing the craft and inspiration of poetry into the lives of young writers all across the rural South. We also heard about her return to cultural organizing, to help the Arts Exchange, the community-centered, community-serving arts organization she helped helped establish 40 years ago in its struggle to keep its head above water during the pandemic. Now, what follows, the next chapter, one might say, is about something new arising from the Arts Exchange legacy, a specific place in Atlanta whose time had come and gone, but whose story is amazingly, in these times growing in momentum and power. Embedded in what follows are a lot of lessons about foresight and ownership and accountability and the essential value of history. It's a story I have no doubt will bring a smile and a spark of optimism to our listeners. Part one, I could just feel it. Okay, so is this any better, Bill? Oh, it's so much better. Yeah. Okay. You can go find a young person. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. All right. So, what's happening in in Alice Lovelace's world these days? Working as hard as ever. Yeah. And happy to be able to be working. <laughs> yeah, but the things are going well for us at the Arts Exchange. It's been a great year, and the next year's looking even better. So, with the way things are moving. One of the things that jumped out at me was that it's like you created a space, you cultivated the soil. And a whole lot of seeds blew in, and a lot of stuff got growing. 
some of which you probably had in mind and other stuff that just showed up. Is that right? Yeah, and that's one of the advantages of us owning our own facility and having such a large facility so that when artists or organizations come to us with an idea, even if it's not on our calendar, we can make way for it. So we're able to just allow space for people who show up at the last moment. So it does make us have a very crowded calendar. How in the heck did you end up getting this? It's an old school, right? It was a school? Mm -hmm. It was a school building, elementary school, yes. Yes, and it's a brick building, right? So it's solid and... Oh, yeah. It's, it was built in 1940. So what's the story of this, this wonderful facility becoming the Arts Exchange? We, had, we owned a school building in Atlanta in the Grant Park neighborhood. And that's the facility that we sold when the developers came and overran the community. So we bought this building and started the renovations. So it took extensive renovations. The building was in really bad shape. But it was one of those things where... I think I maybe had looked at at least 60 different buildings trying to find a home. And I walked in the door here, and even though it was in terrible shape, it just had a feeling to it. You could feel it. And so I said, we'd take a chance. We bought it and stripped it all the way down to the bare bones and just started building it back up from the bones. And it's been a, it was perfect home for us. It was where we were supposed to be. So we have 16 studios for for working artists. We have a theater. We have a gallery. We have a library. And we have a community room. We have a prep kitchen. And our studio artists range from everything. We have two dance studios, acting studio. Our artists are muralists, photographers. We have a framing shop. There are visual artists. There's capoeira artists. We have a naturalist here. We have an urban farmer who's here, Egyptian yoga, a young woman who does miniatures and other kind of craftings and literary programs. And then we have a photographer who is a Yoruba spiritualist. And so we do, a, there's a lot of Yoruba spiritualist ceremonies here. Ah, oh, I mean, I got to get me a ticket and just come and hang out. I mean, <laughs> you, I, you do. I don't know if you had a dream, but it sounds like this is a dream space. The Arts Exchange from its inception has always been this. That was what marked us different from others, other spaces. We've always been multidiscipline, multicultural, and with this diverse mix of people. So even in our old spaces, we had groups that did modern dance and avant-garde theater. And right alongside them, we had people who were teaching Ganesh dance and traditional African dances. So the traditional and the avant-garde, we always mix them up and there's just always been this big mix. It was what we were born to do. Part two, growing stories. So you're in this old renovated beautiful facility. What is the relationship that the facility has with the people that live around it? Yeah, this is where we're doing our biggest work right now. COVID disrupted a lot of work and set us back. So we actually are partnering with a lot of different organizations in the community and focusing on it. So where we are is is outside of Atlanta. When we moved here purposefully, because Atlanta just had too many arts organizations. It was overserved. 
So we looked around and we found a part of the county that wasn't being served at all. And we purposefully moved here to help create an arts culture on the south side of Fulton County. There's a lot of little towns here that have never had art services. So we've partnered with the other artists organizations here and we're working with them to create an organization called Arts United. And the whole purpose is for us to promote art outside of Atlanta and to get artists who live in this part of the county to identify as artists from here so that we can begin to build an art identity, mm -hmm. but also that we can go together and market the south side of Fulton County as a destination. So they're also members of the city's health equity board. So they're working with Morehouse School of Medicine. And so we work with them around the areas of housing and land use, also health inequities. Mm -hmm. And in August, we'll be hosting in the building a big health equity fair, talking about how all of these issues feed into health equity. And Morehouse is writing a plan with the city, the first time the city has ever done this, that they're actually writing a purposeful plan for how to create health equity for poor and working class people in this little city that we're in. Yeah, and I noticed you're growing a few things too, right? We've taken our community garden and we get people in the neighborhood and have beds there, but we're now expanding it to an urban farm. So I got permission from the board to take more of the land that we have, and we're taking the rest of the land and we're going to be getting a farm number. And the idea is that within the next 18 months, we will transform into an urban farm where we'll actually be able to do farm markets here. So we tore up our front lawn and all of our grass, and the whole idea is that we're starting a conservation program. All of the property has to be productive not dead, not grass, it has to be mowed. There has to be something growing there or it has to be a platform for a classroom, for a teaching learning area, or for a beautification restoration where people can come and sit and be with nature and just be restored. So we're working on shifting the land. We do a lot of programs for seniors. Senior citizens are one of the largest groups out here and we're expanding that and then STEAM workshops, and then the gallery has a full schedule mm -hmm. and the literary program. So the whole idea is to position ourselves. So what we say is that that we are an art place of wellness and healing. Yeah. So our whole thing is to how can we use art to, to heal the community and to be a place where they come for wellness and respite. So are you in contact with Carlton Turner? Oh, yeah, with the SIP. Yeah, Carlton is doing big stuff in Mississippi. He so proud of what he's doing yeah. there. Yeah. So glad he decided to go home and take all of that expertise home. Because what you're just describing is it's like a parallel universe to what he is doing. Exactly. Mm. The farming, changing the status of the food desert. And one of the richest agricultural areas in the world and becoming a cultural health wellness incubating seed planting center for a community changing the prevailing story acknowledging there is a story on the ground whether you like it or not and the work of cultural workers and organizers and activists is t to basically say well, what's the story we want to have and, you know, the Arts Exchange now, this is a story incubation center, and it's amazing what you're doing. You write your own history. You yeah. don't accept what other people had down to you. Yeah. You recognize that every day you have an opportunity to write history. Absolutely. And it's all about your actions and what you do. 
It is, and but with your head, your hands, and your hearts in it, in the soil, in the clay, on the stage, in the community meeting. So is this also a place where people who are organizing for various issues come and gather and convene? So we do a lot of support for other organizations, yes. But there are all kinds of organizations. So there'll be a meeting coming up very soon from Ag Aware, and it's an agricultural organization that teaches urban farmers how to write grants and how to manage mm-hmm. their financial books. So they'll have an all-day workshop here for urban farmers from all around the, the metro area, training them. And then there's a market here called Market 166. And because this is a food desert, the people in the neighborhood began to organize their own market. So they started organizing here. Now they're about ready to start moving to the market. So they'll have their board meeting here. We have African naming ceremonies. There are graduations. There's weddings. I mean, so we are essentially here for whatever the community Mm. needs. We keep our space affordable. People can't afford it even at the rates that we have. Again, because we own it, we can work with them Mm. to either give it away free or at a very nominal cost. And so it's it is a blessing. It's a blessing for us to be able to bless other people like that. So we get a lot. We get a diverse groups. We get trainings from Emory University, people training artists on art and social change. Yeah, you name it, and it's come through here. Part three, owning the future. You built an incredible foundation that's obviously going to take off in many directions. What do you see long-term. My goal is to step down by the end of this year as executive director. (laughs) I am really working hard to get the organization to focus on new leadership. I'll stay involved with the finances because my primary concern has been to make sure that this organization is financially secure so that it does not have to worry about the future, that it has a firm foundation. So I'll continue to do that for another year to keep building a war chest for them and to help with the investments and, and to make sure that we're sound. And then I'm hoping to go away, and I'm hoping that the people who need it will come and take it. I constantly have to say this, but I don't think people believe me, but I, I say it doesn't matter what you build. It will only stand if people take ownership of it and treat it as if it's their own. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make space for people to come take ownership of it, and that's will guarantee that it goes forward. I, I see myself as... Yeah, kind of an obstacle because everybody wants to defer to me because Mm. of my long history here. Mm. So I have to constantly step back and go, no. So I have made a very purposeful decision this year to defer to others, push others forward in leadership so that they are seen. I don't come to as many events. I work behind the scene a lot more this year because I want other people to be seen as the faces of of the people, Mm. the presence here so Mm -hmm. that they identify with them. So talk to me about these two critical things. Number one is the importance of ownership. And that's literally the physical ownership of this space in a world that is unforgiving of those who are metaphorical and real renters, right? I mean, you are vulnerable there. And the other thing is this idea of transferring ownership, transferring equity from original leaders to second, third, fourth generation leaders. Talk about that. I'm a preacher about ownership. This is something we learned very early. Maynard Jackson started the first Center for Black Arts here, which was the Neighborhood Arts Center. And it was not a space that 
owned, and it was under the authority of upper-middle-class people. Now, Manor Jackson was the first black mayor of Atlanta, right? Yes. But the vision of the artist on the ground working was very different from the vision of the people who were on the board. Ultimately, that space, we lost it, and it burned. And when my friend Ebon Dooley, who was the one who went searching for a replacement home and found our building, a school building in Grant Park, and he came to me to help him reestablish another center. We did that. I took over there in 1986. And when Ebon left, the last thing he said to me is that you have to find a way to buy this building. We cannot be displaced again. And so I worked really hard. And by 1990, we had purchased that property from the Board of Education. That's such a critical milestone. Could you talk about what that meant to you all long term? Having that property, when the developers came and it being ours, meant that whatever benefits were to come from that displacement, from the gentrification, would be ours. Mm -hmm. So we did not see ourselves being there serving this upper-class audience of people who did not need us. We were not of service to them. We've always wanted to be of service. So we sold them building and we got a nice pot of money to allow us to buy this building outright, renovate it outright, and put away money to be invested for the future of this building. And I tell all artists I encounter that you have to own, you have to own your place of work. You can't you, it's just essential. And what we have here is comparable to what a city or a county government would run. Our facility actually is larger than the two facilities that the county runs mm. and more diverse. So it is very unusual to find it. And not only that, it's, it's a facility that has always been run by people of color and has always been run by artists and will be 40 years old next year. And that is a tradition that I'm hoping people will not step away from because I think that is critical to understanding how we serve not just communities, because if we serve artists, our artists serve community. I mean, as a facility, we facilitate other people coming through and making that change. Part four, leadership and libraries. So who's taking the baton from you? Who are the next Alice Lovelaces in the wings? When it comes to new leadership, I mean, the young lady that took over from me as president of the board, she started taking dance classes at the Old Arts Exchange when she was six years old. <laughs> so we, wow. we look to legacy people who understand the history of this organization. And we've started also building more younger people into the board. We just brought on a 24-year-old board member. We're looking at someone who's 27. We're bringing in more younger people to get them to get that buy-in. And yeah, it's a process and mm -hmm. you never know. But I, again, I say, if it stands, it'll stand because they want it to stand. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, in some ways, every parent faces this dilemma, as you well know. Yes, they do. But and, what makes it work is that, so I'll talk about my children. My, my children were raised, Chicky and I raised our children with our values. We didn't tell them that they had to adopt our values, but we made our values very obvious and we involved them in the things that were meaningful to us. And we never said, this is how you have to live your life. But we were gratified in that they all did follow in our footsteps. They saw what we were doing. They identified with it. And even as they went through their young lives, when they returned to 
the power of art in making powerful change. And so you raise a child the way you want it to go. We raise this organization the way we wanted it to go. So hopefully it'll keep moving in that direction. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you now is, yeah, I have all this interaction with people who, like I said at the beginning, they don't have access to stories like this. And that's one of the reasons I do this podcast is to try and open the curtains. Young people who are isolated from the value of the history, current history, the creation of this place at this time is amazing. I mean, you're looking at a lot of people who are feeling like, oh my God, the momentum, the the power of community voice and of ownership and of organizing is dissipating. And that's not the story you're telling. You're telling a different story. Yes. And the seeds were planted well before this time. So even when I talk with young organizers and I talk about this work and talk about this as protracted work, this is not something that one day everything is fulfilled and there's this happy world you go off into. The work is continuous and constant and the struggle is perpetual. There's always someone who wants to push you back. There always has been, there always will be. So all you can do is plant your feet somewhere and hold that ground. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. And we planted our feet and we're holding this ground. Mm -hmm. So you have a history, a legacy, and a massive Rolodex of relationships, which is built on the goodwill that people hold towards you and the respect that people have towards you. And I think one of the hardest things when you're transferring leadership is to shepherd those new leaders into that connection to that legacy on their own terms. Yeah. One of the things that I lament is that cultural leaders are no longer trained the way I was trained. Mm. So a lot of the folks that we're trying to work with and bring to leadership, they know one thing or they may know two things, but they don't have a comprehensive range of skills or or ability to see a big picture. So we'll make a plan. And if something happens, someone says that's not in the plan. But I'm always looking for that thing that enhances the plan, deepens the plan that should have been in the plan, but we just didn't know about it at the time. But if we've got room, let's put it in the plan. But I'm very selective about it because a lot of people come to us for things. So I try to be very selective. And that's what I'm trying my best to teach now is how to recognize when something fits into your plan and lifts up what you're doing and when something just simply wants to take advantage Mm -hmm. of what you're doing Mm -hmm. and understanding that authentic relationship And that's something people have to learn. You can't teach it to them, so you have to let them go out there and do it themselves. I did it when I was first starting out. I made the mistakes. You have to fall. And I truly do believe that mistakes make you stronger. Sometimes they're painful, but you don't forget that pain and you don't repeat that again. So every generation has to find its own way. And I've tried to remind myself constantly that it won't be like I've run it. It won't be like it was that first 40 years. It will morph and it will be different. And I'm good with that as long as it serves the people it's supposed to serve. Yeah. I'm so reminded. Actually, I call this the geezer disease. I talked to a neuroscientist about this. He said many cultures basically recognize that the human brain fails in certain ways as it gets older, but there are other things it does really well. And one of the things is that 
you're not going to remember everybody's name, but you're going to have a grasp of history that is unparalleled because that's the part of your brain that you need to make sense of the world as you get older. Amen to that. You know, if there's a dead horse I keep beating, it's that history horse. And history is more than a recitation of facts, and this happened when and where and what. It is also about an evolution of the path of the world. So a piece of marketing materials attributed a quote to me that said we were building a place of art for art's sake, but also for art for people's sake. And so I had to circle it and say, this is a contradiction. You can't do both. You don't Mm -hmm. understand the dichotomy that these things don't go together. Mm -hmm. And that's what history gives you. So I had to say, no, I I support people who want to make art for art's sake, but I believe in art for people's sake. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And here's the thing, Alice, you've had the benefit of having had that conversation a hundred times. I mean, (laughs) you know, that point where all of a sudden this light bulb goes off and says, there is absolutely no such thing as art for art's sake. There is a human story connected to every single stroke of every piece of art, of every song, of every dance. And if somehow you try to create the fiction of this just being in a box for some art god. You just took the mojo out of the whole story. It goes right out there with objective journalism. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Anything where there is human involvement, there are perspectives that you bring to it, there are your politics, even your religion. I mean, all of these things come to inform it. So the fact that we can create art for people who could never afford art on their own, for whom art was never intended, they were too below it. Yeah. And so again, I hate to harp on my children, but that's one thing that I am very proud of about my kids is that this is something that we constantly talk about. And some of my greatest political conversations and understandings come in conversations with mm. them. And I tell you, somebody has to carry it forward. It can't all drop out just because a generation dies. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And Alice, what a blessing for a life. Your legacy has been passed on to your children and they are operating they, they in a way that, that, you know, that, that makes you proud, which is incredible. I just thought of something, Alice. What's that? So if the impossible actually manifests, which is that Alice Lovelace steps aside, okay, and that new leadership takes place, are you at all interested in, in, in doing some other stuff? Yes, I started back to performing again and realize how much I missed mm. it. So I mm. tend to go out and slap some of these young poets around <laughs> and show them what the other generation can do. Yeah, I'm writing. I've been asked to do some training of the next generation of artists. And we're thinking about starting a training institute here, training that there are theories and practices in community art. Mm-hmm. It's not just a run in there. I couldn't get a job anywhere else. Let me work with <laughs> yes. in the community. Yeah. But there are morals, there are values. There are things that have to be held to, mm-hmm. and no one's teaching those yes. things anymore. And so there is a call for perhaps creating some sort of a, an ongoing institute that would actually teach that practice in a deeper way. To feed what you're talking about here, I mean, there's not a whole lot of people around that I would trust with this stuff, but you're definitely one of them because your fingerprints are all over it. I think there are a lot of dynamic people out here still doing the work like you show every time you do a podcast. Yeah. Still out there doing the work. 
working in the field and bringing in harvest. And that, that the more those stories are, are told, when every somebody starts talking about the doom and gloom, it's, but, every, but the good thing is that it's not everybody. You start off talking about the news. If you look at the news and if you look at the media, there is no news any longer. There's gossip. There's gossip and innuendo yes. and yes. opinions. Yes. There's very little things that you could actually call real journalism or real knowledge being passed on to help people understand the world, their place in the world, and what is happening to to them as a result of it. So all of the ways that you can share with people that there are there's so much hope out here. Absolutely. And I believe it outweighs the other. That's why the other has to make such loud noises because they want us to believe that they're the majority, but I don't accept it. It's just, it, there's some big megaphones. Yes. And they're shouting, I mean, they're not even good. They're terrible stories, badly told. And if all you could do in the world is just say, learn the difference between an authentic story and a story that's just there to just turn your head inside out and get you scared and act in a, in a silly way. I thought that this last week was an example of what happens when someone doesn't understand the story that they're telling. That was Marjorie Taylor Greene with her speech about Biden trying to be like FDR. And what she told was such a powerful story of lifting people up. I could not understand why she thought they could turn it into a campaign thing. It was brilliant by turning the story on someone because she's a person who is devoid of history, totally does not understand. She brings words out of the stratosphere, not understanding the power of what those words mean. Right. And that is what's one example of people. I actually, here's the thing, and this is my conspiracy theory, is that all these people, I think they're all AI. I don't think they're real. <laughs> and I think, and the software is not very good at creating whole people so there's just so they've they've gone and taken a little video of of used car salespeople and and Donald Trump or whatever and they said okay make me a couple more people that are like this and it's it would be incredibly entertaining if it weren't so tragic and dangerous and if they were not in the positions that they were in exactly exactly yeah so, and that's the horror the fact that that you could make the enemy of the library one of the last most democratic institutions that we have. Yes. And that, I became endeared to libraries when when we used to go downtown to the library and the homeless population would come in. And one of the librarians had to explain to one of the patrons that we, we don't turn people away. We can't turn people away. It doesn't matter who, who he is or where he came from or what he looks like. When he walks through that door, this right. is a library. Yeah. And uh, I was like, yes. Yes. I love the library. That's, that's, I never thought I'd see it in my life. Yeah. But we should have because books have always been dangerous, like writers and thinkers yes. and artists and creators have always, because you can conceive what others cannot. Yes. Yeah. And as we often do in conversations like this, when I think we've come full circle back to the promise and the danger inherent in the work. In the art, every time you stand up there with a poem, it's as potentially dangerous as it is revelatory. When I listen to this poem that we started out with, it's like, Alice, I'm thinking, you need to be out there blowing people's minds that way. Yeah, I am looking forward to being able to actually sit with my thoughts and try to get a handle on what is it that, that as a poet, 
that I could communicate today that would make some sense out of the noise. Yeah. And part of it is using the noise yeah. to to bunk noise. So, yeah, I am. I really, I'm really in Philly. It's really weird. I'll be 76 next year. I have never felt younger. Mm. And I don't know if this is like that burst that you get before it's the end, but <laughs> yes. the clarity, the energy, I other people are shying away and I'm like, I'm gangbusters to get out here. Yeah. I want to take this on. I hear you. Because I think this is the kind of a political atmosphere that I think I was born for. Yeah. yeah. That, that really gets my juices going because there's something to address. There are things to be set right. Still. Here's the thing. I think we all wish that we wouldn't be here, but actually the existential questions are being called. Yes. They're not being whispered and they're not being debated by pointy-headed people off in some university. They're being called on the front pages, in the streets, every day. In the schools, Absolutely. at the library. Absolutely. Yes, at the coffee house. Yes. yes. And then we are compelled to have to answer. And it Absolutely. is, it either... I, and whether the next generation wants it or not, or think they need it or not, right. I know that the world needs it. Yep. And so, hey, you're not going till you're gone. And that's the thing about history, is how do you bring history as a real thing into the room so that somebody doesn't say, that was an interesting and nice that story, the- that's water under the bridge. But no, this is yeah. the water. We're in the flood. And that's why I think the training thing is so important, is to be able to tell those stories in a place where people have the time and the structure to ponder and discern what they're hearing. And not only hear our stories, but then to use those to begin to understand the stories that are around them that they didn't understand or they didn't know how to put into context. Exactly. And we have to have now a framework where they can contextualize what's what they're going through yeah absolutely yeah absolutely. so true always good to talk with you Dan. absolutely bye-bye bye-bye and bye-bye and thanks to those of you who are out there listening and hey if you have some comments or questions or ideas about how we can expand the change the story community or people you think we should be talking to please drop us a line at csac at art that's csac at artandcommunity.com and please know that we read and try our best to respond to everything. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape spring forth from the head, heart, and hands of the maestro Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org. Our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of OOP 235. So, Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. And rest assured, this episode has been 100% human.